Hey, we are uh, beginning a new series today. Um, we've titled the series simply Q&A, Your Questions, God's Answers. Um, I asked you to, to submit some questions. Many of you did. It's a tall order to say that I'm going to give you God's answers. That's, uh, that's an awesome task. But uh, that's my challenge. I'm going to work very hard to give you what I believe are God's answers in the Bible to the questions that you have posed. And uh, when I give you my own opinion, to acknowledge it as my opinion. Um, in your program this morning is a listing. It's actually on the back of this picture. You don't have the lovely picture, but it's, this is on the other side. The Q&A series schedule. And uh, those, that's where we're going for this. Interestingly, after the deadline, we received a flurry of additional questions. And uh, many of them were very, very good questions. So if your question didn't make the list for this series, I apologize. But be on time next time. It's just as simple as that. <laughs> no, seriously, there's some great questions. And so what I'm going to try to do is as they, as because some of them relate to the questions that we chose for this schedule, um, I'm going to try to answer some of them as we move along. And others, uh, I, I will write you a personal response. How's that? Is that fair? Okay. All right. So the question that leads off this series is this, why should I accept the Bible as God's authoritative word? It's a good question. It's a great question. And it's a timely question for this generation in which most people have come to regard the Bible as historically unreliable, scientifically impossible, culturally regressive, and therefore obsolete and irrelevant to our lives. And it's likely that at some point you've struggled with questions like that pertaining to the reliability of the Bible, uh, the credibility of the church's claims regarding its authority, with regard to your personal faith and the ways that you choose to, your, to live your life. And if, if that describes you, then uh, hopefully you'll find benefit in this message. Uh, I know that I personally have struggled uh, with those questions in my life. I want to warn you ahead of time that uh, this morning that this particular message is going to be like trying to get a drink out of a fire hydrant. Uh, you're you're going to get more on you than in you. And... Um, I'm going to move quickly because I have a lot to share. So uh, in your program is a form for taking notes. I want to encourage you to do that. Um, and I will try to make sure that I help you fill in all those blanks. Um, also, this message is going to be up on our website, hopefully by midweek, so that you can listen to it again if you choose to do that uh, or download it to your own device and listen to it um, elsewhere. In LifePoint Church's statement of beliefs is this statement regarding what we believe about and teach about the Bible. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that human authors were moved by the Holy Spirit to write the very words of Scripture. We believe that the Bible is true and without error and is supremely authoritative for our lives. That's our position as a church on this subject. I want to, to know you two, want you to know two things this morning as we enter into this study together. Uh, first, the Christian faith really does require belief in the Bible. Uh, Christians have always been people of the book. Uh, Paul probably captured this best in his 
letter to his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, where he wrote, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able, listen to this, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that it's the scriptures that lead us to Jesus. It's the scriptures that point powerfully to him and lead us to faith. Paul said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Uh, To the Christ followers in Thessalonica, Paul wrote, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. Hear that phrase, mere human ideas. Many people think that's what the Bible is full of. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is, and this word continues to work in you who believe. It's the word of God. Not, here, not mere human ideas. And so the apostle Peter urged his readers, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Uh, you, you will not be led to faith without the word of God. You won't grow up in the spirit, in your spiritual life and your walk with God without his word. You have to have a steady diet of the scriptures to grow spiritually. Um, second, I want you to know that you can be confident that the Bible is God's word. You can have that confidence. And with that goal in mind this morning, I want to share with you um, just five positive points of evidence that point to the Bible as God's word And then because it's God's word that uh, it's authoritative for our lives. Also want you to know that we're only scratching the surface this morning. I'm just going to ski across the top of some really, really big concepts. And so I I want to urge you uh, to take each of these points of evidence as avenues for further study, further exploration. Uh, So let's just dive in. The first point of evidence is this, that the, the Bible's uniqueness among all of the other holy books of all of the world's religions. And as we do that comparison, we find that the Bible really stands alone among all the other books. Uh, It's unique and different from all the others. It's unique in its view of the triune God, uh, its view of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, Uh, doctrine of origins or creation, its view of humanity, of sin and redemption, of salvation, of life after death, just to name a few. Other religions, and I will say this man-made religions, teach that a man can earn salvation, a man or woman can earn salvation through various religious practices, good works, uh, living a good life. The Bible explains that By contrast, that man is sinful, that man is deserving of God's judgment, that no amount of good works before God could ever remove our guilt. God himself solves our problem by becoming a man in the person of Jesus, taking on human flesh, living a perfect life, offering himself as the uh, atoning sacrifice for our sin. He, He bore our punishment at the cross, yours and mine, in our place as our substitute. 
man-made religions are about what people can do to merit their God's favor, to please him, and so to earn salvation. But the Bible is all about what God has already done for us in Jesus Christ. The operative word in every other religion besides Christianity is the word do. And the operative word in Christianity, biblical Christianity, is done. Do this and earn God's favor. Your salvation is accomplished at the cross. And as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive what he's already accomplished on your behalf. Got so excited I lost my place. There was a a 19th century professor of Sanskrit, the ancient language of India, at Oxford University, um, Montiero Williams, uh, really understood the uniqueness of the Bible among all of the holy books of all the world's religions. And after study, uh, spending 42 years studying the books of Eastern religions, he compared them with the Bible and he, he said this, pile them with you, if you will, on the left side of your study table, but place your own holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone and with a wide gap between them. For there is a gulf between it and the so-called sacred books of the East, which severs the one from the the other utterly hopeless and forever. A veritable gulf which cannot be bridged over by any science of religious thought. The Bible stands unique among all of the books of all of the world's religions. Point of evidence number two is this, the Bible's internal coherence. That is, the Bible hangs together. It's a sticky book. There's one theme that runs all through the Bible, and we're going to see what that is in just a few minutes. But the Bible was written over a 1,500-year span. It was written by more than 40 authors from every walk of life including kings and military leaders, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, tax collectors, poets, musicians, statesmen, scholars, and shepherds. Most of those writers did not and could not have known each other. Every one of the New Testament writers, with the exception of Mark and Luke, were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. The 66 books of the Bible were written in a variety of locales, in the wilderness, in a dungeon, on a hillside, in a palace, inside a prison, out on the road, in exile on a a prison island. It was written in times of war and sacrifice as well as times of peace and prosperity. The books were written in different moods the heights of joy and the depths of sorrow and despair, in certainty as well as in conviction, as well as confusion and doubt. It was written on three separate continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. It's written in a wide variety of literary styles, poetry, historical narrative, song, romance, didactic treatise, personal correspondence, 
memoirs, satire, biography, autobiography, law, prophecy, parable, allegory, and more. The Bible is written in two distinct volumes, the Old and New Testament. One tells us, on on the one hand, what's going to happen. It's pointing forward. The other tells us that it happened and how it happened and why we should respond, how we should respond. There's an old phrase that, that if you went to Bible school of some kind, you may have heard, then it says this, that the new is in the old concealed. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. In other words, everything that the, the, the summary of the New Testament, the core of the New Testament, the essence of the New Testament is concealed in the Old Testament. And then the old is in the new revealed. So the the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. In other words, all of that New Testament stuff that was in the Old Testament concealed in the New Testament is the old is revealed. And so you have uh, a, a gospel writer like Matthew using the phrase over and over again, this was written so that the prophecy might be fulfilled. The, the New Testament writers, Jesus, Paul, all of the gospel writers over and over again are pointing back. This is, this is what the Old Testament said. This is what the prophets said. This is what David said. This is what Moses said. This is what God did. That, this here was foreshadowed back then. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. And all of that, the entire Bible, hangs together on one theme because all of the books of the Bible point to one person, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. Point of evidence number three, the Bible's internal witness. What do I mean by that? I mean what the biblical writers had to say about the scriptures. Each individual talking about the sum of the scriptures. Psalm 19, 7 through 11, for example, and this is so good, you should memorize this. You should help your kids memorize it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and he said to Timothy, all scripture, now remember as he says all scripture, he's speaking predominantly, almost entirely, of the Old Testament. That's all they had. It's what Timothy was brought up on. All scripture is breathed out by God. I'm gonna just pause right there. Uh, the the $50,000 Greek word there is theonustos. Theo, God, nustos, breath. So that Paul is saying that The source of scripture is God breathing it out. The wind of the spirit, the the breath of God. And so it can 
properly be called the word of God, profitable then because it's from God and because it's authoritative, he says profitable then for teaching, for reproof, which is saying you're off track. That's what reproof is. You're off track. For correction, here's how to get back on track. For training in righteousness, that you can stay on the right track in the future, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete. The word is the word also translated mature in other places. Finished product, mature. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The, the word of God is needed to live the life that God has called you, designed you, saved you, died for you to live. Peter, 2 Peter 1, 16, verses 19 through 21, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Pause right there again. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this isn't made up. These aren't fables. These aren't myths. These aren't, these aren't you know, fantastical imaginings. Uh, that we came up with sitting around a campfire one night. Let's create a religion, guys. What do you think? Paul said, none of that could possibly be true. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And now he's talking again about the apostles, the eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And so he says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What the prophet said is more fully confirmed in Christ to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. You ever feel like you're living in a dark place? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, which I think is a reference to coming of Christ, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Again, there's so many criticisms of the Bible, aren't there? That this is just someone's good idea, this is just someone's interpretation, that it was made up at the time of Christ or shortly thereafter. None of that is true. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's the same picture as the breath of God because that, that expression being carried along by the Holy Spirit comes from the world of sailing. It's a nautical term that's used there. And, it, and it's simply the picture of, of someone raising their sails and, and the wind catching the sail and carrying them along. You can say, well, there, certainly there are prophecies produced by the will of man. There are false prophecies, and that's true. The test in the Old Testament for a prophet was, is, is what this prophet is saying actually coming true? Is it being fulfilled? So yeah, there's false prophecy, but certainly Peter is not referring to that. He's talking about the prophecies that are in the Bible, the canon of Scripture. Prophet Isaiah said, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There's, everything else is passing away, isn't it? 
I mean, life is changing um, and, and everything's gonna pass away, but the word of God stands forever. And that's what some of what, just a small part of what the biblical writers had to say about the scriptures. But I mentioned earlier that, that the common theme of the whole Bible is Jesus. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus. The Old Testament points to him. The New Testament reveals him and explains him. And if you're taking notes, I just want you to put your pen down for just a moment. Okay? Just put it down because you're not going to be able to follow this. It's going to move too fast. Just listen. And then if you want, somebody asks if I would publish this list, and I will. But this has to do, again, with the biblical writer's consistent testimony regarding Jesus. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman, the promised redeemer. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the high priest. In Numbers, he's the cloud and the pillar of fire. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he's the commander of the army of the Lord. In Judges, he's the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he's the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he's the prophet of the Lord. In First and Second Kings, he is the reigning king. In First and Second Chronicles, he is the glorious temple. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, he is the intercessor. In Job, he is the day spring from on high. In Psalms, he's the Lord our shepherd. And the stone, the builders rejected. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he's the everlasting one, the wisdom of God. In the Song of Solomon, he's the lover and bridegroom. Isaiah presents him as the suffering servant. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah presents him as the righteous branch. Ezekiel presents him as the son of man. Daniel presents him also as the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. In Hosea, he's the faithful bridegroom. In Joel, he's the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's the burden bearer. In Obadiah, he's the mighty savior. In Jonah, he is the compassionate, forgiving God. In Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he is the great evangelist. In Zephaniah, he's the restorer of the righteous remnant. In Haggai, he is the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, he is the pierced son. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness. In Matthew's gospel, He's revealed as Messiah. Mark's gospel reveals him as the miracle worker. Luke's gospel shows him as the son of man. John's gospel reveals him as the son of God, the resurrection and the life. In Acts, Luke shows him as the ascended Lord, the prince of life, the hope of Israel. Paul points to Jesus in Romans as the one who justifies. To the Corinthians, Paul presents Jesus as the last Adam. To the Galatians, he is the one who sets us free. To the Ephesians, he's the peacemaker. To the Philippians, he is the God who meets our every need. To the Colossians, he's the fullness of the Godhead, the image of the invisible God. To the Thessalonians, he's the soon coming king. Paul presents Jesus to Timothy as the one who came into the world to save sinners, the mediator between God and man. Paul wrote to Titus about Jesus who is our blessed hope. To Philemon, Paul presented Jesus as the friend who sticks closer than a brother. In Hebrews, we find Jesus to be the creator, the author and perfecter of our faith, the high priest who offers one sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time. James shows us Jesus as the Lord of glory, 
the judge, our forgiver and healer. Peter declares Jesus to be the suffering savior, the living stone, the chief shepherd. John's letters show us Jesus as the word of life, our advocate with the Father, the lover of our souls. Jude calls him the only God, our Savior, the one who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before the throne of God. Revelation celebrates him as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, the one who alone is worthy of our worship, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Amen. See, the Bible is about Jesus from first to last, from Genesis to Revelation. History is his story. The internal coherence of the Bible, the glue that binds it all together, 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 authors on three different continents and three different languages, the thing that binds that all together is its focus on Messiah Jesus. And then there's the witness of fulfilled prophecy. In Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he presents this so powerfully. The Old Testament, written over a period of approximately 1,000 years, contains nearly 300 prophecies regarding the coming of Messiah including his deity, his eternal pre-existence, his ancestry, his virgin birth, surprising details of his early life, his earthly ministry, his miracles, his rejection by the Jews, his betrayal, his arrest, his trials, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death and burial and resurrection and ascension into heaven and more. And all of that is in the Old Testament. You say, I read about that in the New. The New is in the Old Testament concealed and the old is in the new revealed and each of those prophecies over 300 can be shown to have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth establishing his credentials as the promised Messiah and again validating the reliability of the biblical scriptures Well, a man named Peter Stoner wrote a book. I'd like to have the name Stoner stuck to you. (laughs) He wrote a book. That just came to me. I'm sorry. It just just erupted. He wrote a book called Science Speaks. And employing the laws of probability in reference to a selected eight, just eight, of the nearly 300 messianic prophecies, he concluded we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time from the beginning of time to now and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one in 10 to the 17th power, which would be one in 100 quadrillion. Now that's a bigger number than I can even begin to think about. It just kind of makes your head explode. One in 10 to the 17th, one in 100 quadrillion. And then he considered 48 of the messianic prophecies. And he concluded that the probability of any one man living down to the present fulfilled all 48 would be one in 10 to the 157th power. Now, 
I don't even know how to pronounce this word. I had to look it up and find a pronunciation. One in ten unquinquagintillion. Never even heard that word before. One in ten to the 157th power. There was a scientist in the first service, Keith McLean. He came to me between services. He said, Jim, do you know the figure for the number of atoms in the universe? I said, well, of course I do. Everyone knows that. <laughs> he said it's uh, 10 to the 80th. The number of atoms in the universe. And this figure is 1 in 10 to the 157th. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? Doesn't it make your head explode? Stoner gave an illustration, and it's, it's in McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, but he, he gave an illustration for this number, the first number, actually, 1 in 100 quadrillion. He said, take a silver dollar... Actually take enough silver dollars to fill the state of Texas one foot deep in silver dollars. Everything's big in Texas, right? Foot deep, silver dollars in Texas. Ask a man to pick up one of those silver dollars and just huck it into the middle of Texas. Then take a Texas-sized stick and stir it all up. Stir that silver dollar in. And then blindfold that man and, and turn him loose in Texas to find that one silver dollar. The likelihood that he would find the one that he had thrown into the state of Texas would be one, to the seven, one in 10 to the 17th power. What does all that mean? It means that for the discerning, God has left no uncertainty as to the identity of the Messiah his one and only son, Jesus Christ. But realize that, that these are just the prophecies regarding Messiah, just the prophecies regarding him. It doesn't include the hundreds, maybe thousands of other biblical prophecies regarding people and nations and events, historical events that have been fulfilled or are yet to be fulfilled. You see, fulfilled prophecy validates undeniably the identity of Christ and the reliability and authority of the Bible. Point of evidence number four, the witness of Jesus regarding the scriptures, what Jesus himself had to say about the biblical scriptures. In Matthew 5, 17 to 19, Jesus said this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Sometimes you'll hear people say that. Well, Jesus came and he abolished the law and the prophets. That's not what he said. He said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And we might just pause there and observe that Jesus is the unique one who could. He was the only one who could. For truly, he goes on and says, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, 
Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In another place, in John chapter 5, in one of Jesus' famous confrontations with the Pharisees, in the middle of his conversation, he, he said these four words, Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, Jesus was saying, God's word is the last word. And in the context, we might add, if we read the broader context, we might add that Jesus was also making this claim that I am the one uniquely qualified to interpret God's word. In Matthew 24 to 35, he said to his disciples, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my words will not pass away. In other words, my words, Jesus said, bear an authority equal to God's word, an eternal steadfastness equal to God's word because I am he, because I am he. In another confrontation or that original confrontation that I was talking about earlier with the Pharisees, Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. In other words, you, you think that the Bible itself, the scriptures themselves, your knowledge of them, your mastery of them can confer on you eternal life. And Jesus goes on and he says, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In other words, you missed the boats, guys. You're worshiping the Bible and not the one to whom the Bible points. He says, I am the climax. I am the focus of all of the scriptures. In John 16, 12 through 15, Jesus, in some of his final words to the disciples, said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Well, that's kind of a powerful statement, isn't it? Can you imagine if somebody said that to you? Your wife says that to you guys on the way out the door? I have something to share with you when you come home this evening, but you can't handle it right now. <laughs> you can handle the truth. Your whole day, you'd be wondering what? You cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, when the spirit of truth comes, he, the Holy Spirit, will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. When the Holy Spirit of God speaks, he's speaking from God. He's speaking what he hears. There is a, a hierarchy within the tri in the Trinity. He will not speak on his authority, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He, the Holy Spirit, will God the Holy Spirit will glorify me, God the Son, for he, God the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, guys, I'm, I'm out of here. 
but I'm going to continue to communicate with you by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, as you speak what he gives you, you will be speaking on my behalf. And so Jesus in this affirms that the apostles would speak on his behalf and and that therefore their teaching would possess divine authority. I'm just about done. Point of evidence number five, the Bible's external support. What's out there, outside the Bible, that supports what the Bible is saying? And the first source of that support that I always think of is biblical archaeology. Any archaeology buffs in here? Thank you, Teresa. You and I. You and I are alone in this. I love archaeology. In his landmark book, The Archaeology of Palestine, an American archaeologist named William Albright uh, penned these words, the excessive skepticism shown toward the Bible by important historical schools of the 18th and 19th centuries, certain phases of which still appear periodically, has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. Nelson Gluck was a renowned Jewish archaeologist. He wrote in a book, Rivers in the Desert, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. John Stone Street, the president of the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview, wrote, In the modern age, scholars have repeatedly discounted the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, as just a collection of folk myths and fabrications. Many doubted the historical existence of biblical figures, such as Abraham, Moses, Samson, even King David. But a funny thing happened. Modern archaeology began digging up concrete evidence that the Old Testament stories were indeed rooted in history, not only rooted in history, but historically accurate. Finally, I'll cite Paul Meyer in his book, Biblical Archaeology, Factual Evidence to Support the Historicity of the Bible. Ever since scientific archaeology started a century and a half ago, it's a very young discipline, the consistent pattern has been this. The hard evidence from the ground has borne out the biblical record again and again and again. The Bible has nothing to fear from the spade. I love that statement. The Bible has nothing, nothing to fear from the spade. A few years ago, Marcy and I were in Israel, as some of you recall. And we were uh, down on the Sea of Galilee. And we, were, we had just come from the, the city of Capernaum, or the little village of Capernaum. Uh, and, and what came from an archaeological dig there. And the bus was going around along the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And, and I saw this massive, I mean, really, really big archaeological dig. And, and it was obvious what it, that it was uh, an archaeological dig. And I, I went over to our um, tour guide and I said, what is that? And he said, oh, that's Magdala. And I said, Magdala, home of Mary Magdalene. Yeah, they found it. And, and just one more, archaeological digs all over Israel, but, but as soon as we got to where I could go online somewhere, 
typing in, you know, archaeological dig Magdala. Learned a lot about it. In the center of that town, in the synagogue in that town, they found a massive block of stone uh, deep in the ground. You know, over the centuries, just lots of, you know, built up over the top. They found this massive stone. And what this massive stone was, I mean, it would be like a very, very large coffee table in any of our homes. And what this was, was a carving of Herod's temple. And so it was, as in that day, a snapshot in stone of what Herod's temple actually looked like. And here it was in the ground in Magdala. This is fascinating. And, and, and over and over again, uh, biblical archaeology is showing us that the Bible is true and reliable in its history. And then there's extra biblical history. And along with the biblical writers, there are, in fact, scores of other historians from ancient times, many of them pagan or at least secular, who in their writings confirm the, hist- uh, confirm the historical reality of many, many people and cultures and events described in the Bible in both Old and New Testaments. I don't really have time to go there this morning, but let me ask you this morning as I conclude, are are, are you willing to affirm and accept the reliability and the authority of Scripture? Uh, If not, why not? If not, why not? And if you do, let me ask you this, why do you believe? What is it that your belief is rooted in? Put it another way, how do you believe? How do you arrive at your belief? We live in an age of relativism when, when so many have, have entirely rejected the notion of objective truth. Um, so here's another set of questions to chew on for a little while. Do you believe something because you feel it is true? Or do you believe it because it's factually true? Do you allow truth to inform and give shape to your belief? Or do you begin with your belief and allow what you believe to filter what you are willing to accept as truth? I hope you reflect on those things. Hebrews 11 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God because everyone who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Is your faith rooted in fact or feeling? See, the evidence is there for those who are willing to apply their minds, and some are unwilling to apply their minds because they're lazy. Others are unwilling to entertain new evidence because their minds are made up, and they refuse to submit to God's authority. They know that if, if, if they were persuaded, then they might have some sense of accountability to God. Which one of those describes you? I also want to suggest in closing that none of this discussion of a preponderance of evidence for the authority of Scripture matters at all, matters one whit, unless one event in history actually took place in time and space, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the ultimate game-changer The Old Testament prophets all pointed forward to it. Some in great detail, I would submit to you Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. 
Jesus himself predicted his suffering and death and resurrection over and over again in increasing detail as he got closer to that day. But honestly, if it really didn't happen, if Jesus wasn't physically raised from the dead, then it is game over for the reliability of the biblical scriptures and for the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul understood that. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then here's what's true. All of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but if that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then here's what also is true. Your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Paul was willing to go out on a limb, wasn't he? I mean, he was willing to to say what was ultimately true, that, that everything depends on this one thing. If Jesus wasn't physically resurrected from the dead, then our faith is useless. There is no Savior. We're still in our sins. And as regards our discussion this morning, the Bible is a sham. But Paul continued with what he knew to be factually, historically true from his own experience. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to the resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. And he is coming. He is coming. If Christ was not raised, game over. But because Christ was raised from the dead, it's game on. And you can trust the Bible. And through personal faith in Jesus Christ, you can pass from being a member of Adam's family to a member of Jesus' family a child of God. It's my prayer for you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have given us great assurance that your word is true and we can rely on it. We don't have to apologize for it. We don't have to cringe when someone asks us about what we believe because it is rooted in historical fact and truth. Thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, who fulfilled the law for us because we could not, could never even begin to. Thank you that he died in our place as the the complete atonement, the perfect sacrifice, the complete covering for all of our sin, all of our failure before you. And thank you that uh, he was raised from death to life, defeating the power of death, defeating the power of sin on our behalf, that we could be forgiven and we could be reconciled to God and we could be confident that eternity is open to us in heaven. 
Lord, I pray for those today who are standing on that line wondering, do I step over? Do I lean into Jesus? Do I trust him? Lord, I pray that today might be the day that you would grant them that gift of faith that leads to life and that they would know forgiveness and they would become the new creation that you promised we would become. As we come to your table, Lord, we remember you. We celebrate your death and your burial and resurrection and we remember the shed blood of that was shed for us, the, the body that was given for us. Thank you that you invite everyone who has trusted in you to this table, this remembrance, this celebration. We pray it in your name. Amen.